Oh, okay. So I passed around a sign-in sheet for today. If I have your movies messed up somehow, just correct it. Um, I, one student did uh, withdraw from the class, so whenever I put the new roster and I had to move things around, I think I got them right, but anyway. So here we are, part two. Sorry about that for folks at home. You probably didn't need to know that. Well, what is it what we call housekeeping stuff? So today we're going to do part two of chapter three. Remember, our topic is contemporary frameworks. How do we view abnormal behavior today? Talked about historical frameworks. We started talking about Freud, the psychodynamic approach. Remember, psychoanalytic is his therapy approach, but psychodynamic is that broader umbrella, if you will. And where we left off was starting to talk about how Freud saw the mental structures of the human being. So here we go. We've got a chart up here that I have in here. For those of you at home, you don't see that, but I'm going to describe it as best as I can. So according to Freud, there were three pieces to a person's, I guess, mental structure, if you want to say. There were three components that made up your, your personality, who you are. The first is the id, right? The second one's the ego, and the third one's the superego. So here's how I want you to think about this. The it is what you're born with. It's in your unconscious. It's all the instinctual drives and desires, the stuff that you would never admit, right? Now, maybe, uh, maybe, do you have a sibling? Okay, so maybe your sibling really pisses you off. You just want, hate to say this, but you just wish they were dead. Well, you would never tell your sibling that, even though deep in your recesses of your unconscious, you might be like, Right? But that's like this urge, you would never act on it. Well, the id doesn't care about consequences. It just wants what it wants, what it wants. It's selfish. We call it primary process thinking. Right? The only thing it cares about is immediate gratification. So, if you were id and you didn't like your sibling, guess what you would do? You'd go kick their ass. You'd kill them. Because you wouldn't think about the consequences, it wouldn't matter. You just want them gone, they'd be gone. Kids are all id. Think about a kid that runs around the house, right? They want something, they take it. They don't ask, they just take. It's theirs. Mine, 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 mine. They grab stuff and run away. And then you've got to chase them. So kids are all id. They walk up to grandma and they go, Grandma, your breast stinks. And we all go, oh, don't say that to grandma. But grandma's breast stinks. You look weird. Why are you wearing a dress? I mean, they'll do that. You know, in the middle of the grocery store and you're like, uh, no, filter. no filter. It's all id. I feel it, I say it. No stop. Straight through. Got it? So that's what we're all born with. And the two basic impulses that Freud believed we all had were these driving forces of sex and aggression. Sex. You know, think about life and death. Sex and aggression, right? So this is what we do. We're impervious to reason or logic. Again, irrational, impulsive. That's id. The second thing that develops in a child, in a human being, is the ego. The ego is what we call secondary process thinking. It, it's based on this idea of the, re, of the reality principle. In other words, uh, it's predominantly, the ego predominantly lives in consciousness, not the unconscious like the id. And it's the executive that mediates between the id's impulses 
and like the superego which was going to develop later. It tests reality. It seeks safety and survival. It's rational. It's logical. It takes into account society or society's views. So when a kid learns, for example, that they can't tell grandma she has bad breath, right? and they have started to develop their ego, then things like this happen. You go, go give grandma a kiss, and they go, but mom! And they give you that look, like you can't be serious. And you go, go give grandma a kiss, and they go, but... And they'll stomp their feet, and they'll slowly walk over to grandma, and they'll kiss her on the cheek, and then they, you know, they're covering their face, and right? Because grandma's breast stinks, but I can't tell her that. My id wants to say, grandma, brush your damn teeth, but I can't do it. So I just go, and I keep my tongue, right? Come on in. So that's the ego. Again, it's based in reality. What can I say? What can I say? It really tries to control the id and keep it from busting through. The final component of Freud's theory of personality, if you will, Right, is the superego. And the superego resides both in consciousness and unconsciousness. It kind of spreads across the whole thing. And the superego is all the ideals of what you should be, how you should act. Think about the ideal super parent in your head, right? And so, you know, it's got your morals, it strives for perfection, it observes, it dictates, it criticizes. Your superego gets on your ass and tries to hold you accountable. You know, you should never lie, you should never cheat, you should never fail, you should never, all the shoulds, which of course are crap. So, think about it this way. On one shoulder is the id. It's like the devil. Come on, baby, you know you wanna do it, just do it, just do it, right? You want someone, take them, doesn't matter if they wanna do it, right? So you got the devil over here on one, cor on one shoulder, on the other shoulder, you've got the superego, which is the angel going, oh, we must be perfect, we must be good at all times. And right in the middle is the ego. And if the ego's strong, then it balances these two, right? And keeps you on the straight and narrow, so to speak. But sometimes the ego isn't as strong and then the id busts through. You know, the person who uh, says something, they go, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Maybe it was something inappropriate they never should have said, but they said it because they were thinking it deep inside and they just let it go. Or the superego where they're trying to be perfect with everything and, and they're almost overwhelmed by this anxiousness of, you know, I can't meet the standards that I think I have to. So it's really a balancing act. That's what the ego kind of does is balance these two extremes. Does that make sense? So this is what Freud believed. Now, there is no, we can't find an id, ego, or superego. These are, these are kind of theoretical perspectives, if you will, right? So we can't look in the brain and say, here's the id. No, we do see instincts. We do see drives. We see impulses. Those do exist. So the basis of the id we can find. We do have this consciousness, you know, this, this kind of judgment side of us in our thinking pattern. So the superego makes sense. I can kind of go there. Okay, yeah, I kind of see the angel and the devil. I, I got that. And the ego trying to balance it out. So even though we can't identify these structures, it has a little bit of staying power, you know? You can see people act out that way. 
Someone who's antisocial. Remember my story about the guy from the mall parking lot who just takes the car, runs over the elderly woman in the process. He's all id. He doesn't care about society. I want something, I take it. Yes? Is there a reason why some people are more id or more super ego? Freud would say that if there's someone that's more id or super ego, a lot of it has to do with how you were brought up through childhood and some of the developmental stuff that happens along the way. Is there a way to change it if you're too much of one or the other? Is there a way to change it if you're too much of one or the other? I think part of it is making you aware of those extremes. Again, remember the id lies in your unconscious. You don't, you're, you're never really going to necessarily see that. Freud didn't believe you could directly access the id. So he would work on strengthening your ego, getting your ego strong so it doesn't matter about the impulses of the id because essentially your ego can, can't, can handle it. And the superego, again, we're aware of the conscious part, but the unconscious part of the superego, again, we wouldn't be able to touch, but we could at least work with, is it realistic to be perfect in everything? So again, you'd have that, that kind of talk. Remember, psychoanalysis is the analysis of your psychological states, and he used talk therapy or a lot of other therapy approaches to get there. Does that make sense? Yeah, good questions. So. This is the mental structure according to Freud. On this picture you see an iceberg, and an iceberg's a really cool way to kind of think about how these structures fit together. Think about the structure of an iceberg. The majority of the iceberg lies where? Underwater. Underwater, right? In fact, the driving force of the iceberg is out of your sight. Talk to the captain of the Titanic, right? He saw the tip of the iceberg, he saw the top of it, but he didn't see the rest of it underneath. And it's well below the surface, right? That's where the id resides. Deep underneath, well below the surface, you can't see it. It's tough, you'd have to, you'd have to dive deep underneath the water to try to find this iceberg. It would be difficult to find, right? But it's the driving force. Then we have what's called the pre-conscious. The pre-conscious is that area right where the iceberg and the water kind of meet. You know, a little bit of the iceberg's exposed and then it's covered, it's exposed, it's covered as the water washes up on it. That's the pre-conscious. It's the stuff where you go, um, no, I didn't do it. Okay, I did it. But I don't know why I did it. Right? So it's that part that's just there under the state of awareness. You can get to it a lot easier to get to the pre-conscious. Unconscious, still difficult. And then the conscious is the part of the iceberg you see. So you can see in this picture, the superego kind of straddles all of that. The ego is just on the conscious part, the top, and maybe the pre-conscious that's just underneath the surface. And then, of course, the id lies deep, deep, deep underneath. So an iceberg is a great way to think about how these structures fit together. So how do these things develop? Why, I told you you're born with an id, so that comes right off the bat, but how do the other things happen? Well, Freud's theory, strongly based on sexual urges and desires, sex and aggression, the two major driving forces of behavior, according to Freud, remember his time period, people didn't talk about sex, so he saw see a lot of mental illness come in with no physical reason, and he said it was being driven by this underlying sexual urge, possible abuse, possible whatever, 
you know, fantasy of what I'd really like to do, but I can't kind of stuff. So he said individuals process through certain biologically determined stages of what he called psychosexual development because, again, sex is the underlying theme here, in which the libido seeks gratification through zones of the body. And the libido resides in the id. Right? So think about that. You've got these urges. I'm going to try to get my needs met. So here are the stages he laid out, all right? Five stages altogether. And you look at the titles and you go, ah, they're kind of corny. But here's what I want you to think about. Let's go through these stages one at a time and see. The first stage, according to Freud, is the oral stage. So in the oral stage, you have a libido. You've got an id. It's got needs that need to be met. What is the only way? You're an infant. Zero to one and a half. You're an infant. What is the only way you can get your needs met? You can't walk. Right, I can cry. If I'm happy, I coo, I smile, I blow little bubbles like little babies do, right? If I'm pissed off, I bite, I scream, piercing screams. The only way I can get my needs met is orally. So Freud said the first stage is the oral stage. And if you got stuck in a stage, you'd become fixated. You would show those characteristics as an adult. So someone who's stuck in the oral stage might overeat to cope with stress. They might talk crudely. In other words, I can't really control my id. My id comes out, you know, I've got a, a, a potty mouth, a dirty mouth. I'm uh, you know, saying all sorts of nasty, inappropriate things to people. I'm crude, I'm vulgar. Maybe I yell, I take out my aggression verbally, you know, even today. And you can think of people that you know who probably act that way. And that's, what, that's why Freud's theory had some staying power and still does a little bit, is that you know people who are, who are like that. You're like, man, they cannot watch their tongue. They are going to open their mouth and something inappropriate. How they keep their job just blows you away. I got a friend who's a, an engineer. He designs buildings. He's, electric, he's a or structural engineer. He's not good working for people. He's crude. He, he, he is kind of, he, if he believes it, he says it. I remember he was a buddy of mine in college, and he would just walk up to people and he'd go, hey. You know, people, he'd, just, he'd walk across the parking lot and he'd make some comment about someone's chest. Ooh. You know, and then he'd get slapped and he'd just smile and keep moving. He was happy. He's got his own company. He's very successful. He holds it together when he's with his clients, but I guarantee you when he's hanging out with his buddies, he's probably as crude as ever. That's probably what he does. Probably never going to change. So now we're at one and a half. Between the ages of one to three, Freud said the id, or libido, changes its focus. I have needs, I need them met, but now it's no longer oral. Now it's going to focus on the anal region. And you know, people usually go, that's kind of gross. Some textbooks say it's about the holding or expelling of feces. I think, you know, think about one and a half to three. What's happening in a child's life? I'm learning potty training, all those kind of things. There's great success. Hey, you made duty. Yay! Let's
let's bronze it. Let's show it to grandma. Let's take pictures, right? Do we make a big deal about it? So kids have this, you know, pride, right? Or shame, if you will, if you want to think of it that way. So the second stage is the anal stage. And if you got stuck in the anal stage, then as an adult, you would show characteristics of that. You might be anal retentive, constipated, stingy, OCD, uptight, right? Or maybe your anal expulsive personality, you're kind of messy, crap's everywhere, you know? And if you think, oh, this sounds kind of corny, if you've ever said to a friend of yours, Right? Or heard someone say to somebody else, you know, dude or dudette, you're a little anal. You need to chill out. You need to relax. Stop being so uptight. You are Freudian. You are saying they are stuck in the anal stage. And we still say this to our friends today. So we go, huh. And on the surface, it seems to make sense. The third stage, originally Freud just had three and then kind of broken it up into three stages, this last part, right? So the three, third stage, the genital stage, um, many books won't even talk about it as three stages together. They just kind of separate them out. So for confusion, we'll just run with oral, anal, the third stage being phallic, okay? So the phallic stage is between the ages of three to six. Children between the ages of three to six, what do they seem to notice? They're built differently. They're built differently, right? In fact, if you're a parent and you have a child between the ages of three to six, you're often saying, at least at one point in their life, get your hand out of your pants, right? Do you have to go to the bathroom? Get your hand out. They're, they're touch themselves. All right? So Freud said the it or libido shifts its focus now to get its needs met through phallic ways. We notice we have genitalia. It's kind of cool. I don't know what it's used for yet, but it's kind of interesting. And this is where Freud gets himself a little bit in trouble because he sees a different pattern for women than men. They're similar. But the view of women is not as positive as the view of men. Just being honest. So this third stage, the phallic stage, he said that little boys go through what's called the Oedipus complex. Little girls go through the Electra complex. And what that process is, is that you fall in love with your opposite sex parent. Freud went so far to say that the id of course, in libido, desires the opposite sex parent. You want them. You desire them. Remember, it's all sex and aggression. That's, of course, not, not socially acceptable, so you have to cope with that. You've got to figure out a way to cope with it. So let's talk about boys first, then we'll talk about girls. So boys look down, they notice they have genitalia, they notice they have a penis, right? It's kind of a cool thing. That becomes my new focus and they fall in love with their mothers. And if you have a little boy or you see little boys with their moms, <coughs> excuse me, between the ages of three to six, oftentimes they say, mom, when I grow up, I'm going to marry you. You know, I mean, they, you know, mama's boy, they just kind of hang on mom, right? In fact, 
If you get stuck there, you could be a mama's boy at 40. And you've seen this too, right? But they said little boys fall in love with the mother. They desire their mother. They want their mother. That's, of course, not socially acceptable. It creates anxiety within the boy, and the boy develops what's called castration anxiety. What happens, according to Freud, is little boys, you know, that found this new penis that thinks it's pretty cool, now are fearful that dad who is the competing person for mom, is going to find out and cut off this newfound cool thing. So they have castration anxiety. It doesn't have to make sense. This is all being driven by instinctual, illogical id. It doesn't really care. It just it wants what it wants. So we have to find a way to cope with that. We have to displace it. We have to shift the focus away. I have to, right, turn it into something else, sublimate it. That's a defense mechanism. Displacement means to put on something else. Sublimation means to turn it into something more socially acceptable. So what do I do? I become more like dad. If I become more like dad, I'm not a threat to dad. And dad's not a threat to me. It reduces castration anxiety, and then I can move on. Now. People go, where does he get this crazy idea? Well, this is the cool part, mythology. Freud was a classically trained physician. He studied the arts and everything else. And in Greek mythology is the, the myth of Oedipus Rex, the story of Oedipus Rex. Story of a boy, right? Um, I think I told you in the last class, right? Who was gonna be killed, Oedipus Rex, right? So he didn't come up with that idea, he just ran with it. And it seemed to make sense. So that's what's happening on the boy's end. If I identify with this person and I imitate them. And you know, think about Freud's time. You didn't see single family homes. It was traditional, you know, father-mother homes. And back in the day, people, you know, young boys or young men often followed in the same professions as their fathers. Father's a lawyer, you're going to be a lawyer. Father's a blacksmith, you're going to be a blacksmith. You, it's what you did. So it made sense. Maybe not so much today, but it did back then. Let's talk about the female side, and this is where he gets himself in trouble. He said that little girls look down, and they see that they're missing something. They don't have a penis. They don't have that cool thing. They don't know genitalia. They don't understand all the stuff inside. It doesn't matter. They see they're missing something. They're pissed at mom. It's mom's fault, right? Because mom created them. So there's an antagonistic kind of relationship with mom. They, of course, desire their opposite sex parent. According to Freud, they had penis envy. They desired dad's penis. They wanted it. Just like little boys wanted their mom, little girls want their dad. And you can see, you know, what about the daddy's girl? The tomboy or whatever who at age 40 is still acting like that, right? And you see little girls look up to their dad, you know? And Freud said that they desired him. That, of course, is socially inappropriate. It's not acceptable. They have to displace that desire. They have to sublimate it and they have to then imitate their mom. So they become more like their mother, 
It reduces penis envy. It reduces all the social angst of desiring dad, and then they can move on. And the reason why Freud got himself in trouble there is because he says women are missing something. That, that penis envy piece really causes him some difficulty. So that's what's happening in this phallic stage, this third stage. The next stage is from 6 to 11, and that's called the latency stage. The latency stage is just a stage where the id or the ids and the libido is kind of suppressed. It's kind of pushed down for a while, kind of um, takes a back seat. And you know, think about children between the ages of 6 to 11. They're in elementary school. They're getting schooling. You know, it wasn't like higher education like today. You got schooling up until your teens. You were good to go. Maybe more than that if you were going to be a physician or whatever. But, you know, so, you know, you're more focused on those social interactions and schooling, things like that. That's the latency. And then finally, around 11 or 12, normal human sexuality, adult perspectives start to come into play, and we call it the genital stage or in this case, the adult genital stage, considered the fifth stage. Does that make sense? Again, if you get fixated in a part of it, you're stuck there, you show those things as an adult. And also the other thing that, not saying this always happens, but sometimes people will actually be attracted to or marry people who are much like their parent. Right? I love my wife. My wife is kind of like my mom. Not really. And there are times when I have a Freudian slip where you say something, of course, that Freud believes would be driven by the id or the, you know, underneath. Sometimes I'll be talking to my wife and I'll say, oh, so mom, what's up? You know, what's the deal for today? Right? And you go, she's not your mom. My daughter used to say, she's not your mom. She's my mom. Yeah, I know, but I, she's, she's a mother. But we do that, don't we? You know, in certain circumstances, sometimes women will even call their spouse their old man. Just saying. So this is what Freud saw. Again, fixations can happen and regressions. So you could actually regress back to a previous uh, developmental you know, place too. And that actually influenced later personality traits and sometimes created abnormal behavior. So that's what he said. That's why people were acting the way they were. Because maybe I didn't cope well with my Oedipus complex and my anxiety, my castration anxiety, which I'd never admit to. Remember, this is in the unconscious. Maybe that castration anxiety was never resolved and that anxiety is bubbling out through these abnormal behaviors. So again, fixation in Freudian theory refers to the unusual investment in uh, libido energy at certain psychosexual stages, and regression refers to when you return to some earlier state because why? You're frustrated because of stress. The person who throws a temper tantrum at 45 years old and you go, what are you, two? Mm -hmm. They regressed back. Yeah. So where does neurosis come from? Well, what Freud said is neurotic or anxiety-driven symptoms, according to Freud, resulted from the interplay be between instinctual impulses 
you know, striving for expression and these defense mechanisms. Remember, defense mechanisms protect you from anxiety. They distort the reality a little bit. You, you know, I didn't do it. You know, yeah, you did, but you're going to deny it. it. It protects you. So it's these, again, these impulses striving for expression and my defense strategies that allows me to cope with that. And the crucial feature of neurotic symptoms is the re-arousal of urges, fantasies, and fears from an earlier time. A time when the loss of parental love or threats of punishment were experienced as catastrophic events. If you think your parent doesn't love you as a child, that is a catastrophic thought pattern for a child, right? Because we look up to our parents and we know that they will always love. We want them to always love us. If for some reason they don't, I mean, that's shat earth-shattering. So these responses evoked are not adult models of problem resolutions. They actually come from a child's view. He believed that if people were acting neurotic, you know, showing these signs of neuroses, of anxiety-driven uh, problems, it was because they were acting as children and not as adults. They were looking through this world, through this childhood view again, and they needed to be brought up to today. So what is the treatments that follow that? Well, remember, this is all being driven in the unconscious. It's all in the id. It's all below the surface of awareness. So treatments are all going to be to dig down deep in the person's psyche right? To get to these impulses and this, these anxieties and expose them so they no longer are an issue. So some of the psychodynamic techniques that Freud would have used back in the day, free association. So I say a word, you say the first thing that pops into your mind without even thinking about it. You know, I say white, you might say black. I say mom, you say dad. I say good, you say bad. You know, or maybe I say dad and you say bastard. Right? So free association, what's the first thing that pops in your head? Don't, even, don't use a filter, just let the id come out. The other thing he would do is he would look at dream analysis. He would put people under hypnosis because under hypnosis, I put you in a calmer state now the id can come out, the unconscious can come out without fear of retribution because you're, you're in a, well, I'm going, I'm going to take care of you, I'm here to take care of you, let's get you into a relaxed state so that you can let these feelings come out, we can talk about them, right? Resistance, if someone was showing resistance, think about this, perfect job, job security. Freud believed that if someone was showing resistance, you must be getting close to the problem. Because remember, these things don't want to come out. You want to keep them hidden. You don't want to express them. They're not socially acceptable. So you keep them buried. So maybe you're my client, Dustin, and you're coming to class, or you're coming to you know, my counseling session, and at one point you say to me, you know what? I think you're a quack. You suck. I'm not coming anymore. Freud would be like, good, we're getting somewhere. See you next week. And by the way, this wasn't an easy process. Psychoanalysis with Freud would be a multiple year 
ongoing sessions every week. Have the person lay down on the couch. You know that traditional, you know, tell me about your mother. And just let the person ramble and say whatever and then see where it goes. And hopefully the id will start showing itself in one way or another. And then transference and countertransference. He said it was okay for the client to start to look at him, for example, as a parent. To put their feelings for their parent on the therapist. That's called transference. Right? So, Dustin, I'll pick on you again. We'll say that I'm your therapist. You start to look at me in a fatherly way, as a fatherly figure. You know, cool, great. I like that. That's good. We can work with that. Any kind of hostility you're giving me might have been associated with your father way back in the day. We can break our way through that. What's not good is countertransference. That's where the therapist starts to look at the client in that format. So now I start looking at you like a son. Well, that's not going to get us where we need to be. Now we're working my issues, not yours. And that's the other thing, too. Freud believed that every psychoanalyst needed to have their own psychoanalyst. Because you can only get your client as good as you are. What do you think? Making sense? Again, Freud's theory, we still talk about today because it's had such a kind of impact in thought. And it's only about 120 years old. I know that sounds like a long time, but it's not in terms of theoretical thought. So what about now? How do we look at it? Well, there's some variations within this field of psychodynamic approaches. Right? These are some people who initially studied with Freud, but then went on to fi figure out their own interpretations. So you know, the first one here is Alfred Adler. 1870 to 18 or to 1937. So Adler died in 37. Freud died in 39. You can see, you know, again, they were colleagues. Adler said, I agree, right, that childhood affects us later, but it's too much on the sexual side, right? What he believed is that the goal of psychological development was to overcome feelings of inferiority. So follow this logic. When kids are born, they believe they can do anything. I can do anything, right? I can pour milk without spilling it. My daughter used to tell me all the time she's a better teacher than I am, she's a better driver than I am, you know, she's a better parent than I am, you know, right? So kids think they can do everything. And of course, we as parents, not trying to be mean, but we break that down, don't we? No. No, you can't. No. No, 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 no. So we actually break them down from this feeling that they're good down into you know, feeling like they're not good. And then they have to kind of rebuild themselves and overcome feelings of inferiority. Carl Jung, Carl Jung also studied with Sigmund Freud. In fact, if you studied with Freud, if you were a follower of Freud back in the day, this shows you like the ego that Freud had, you were considered one of his disciples. Right? So Carl Jung, and there's actually a, a movie out there called A Dangerous Method, 
And it's uh, based on a, a case that Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud had together, and they actually fought over this case, and that's what parted their ways. So there's actually a movie that came out about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago that kind of depicts that, so I'm just kind of letting you know that. But Carl Jung, you know, who died in 61, 1961, less than 100 years ago, he didn't believe in this idea of, you know, sex being the driving force. Adler kind of did, but said inferiority is bigger. Jung said he did agree, however, with these opposites. If you have sex, you've got aggression. Life, death. So he believed in good, bad, these opposites. And so he actually talked about the idea, when you study all cultures, you find representations of good. Like every culture has a representation for good. Every culture has a representation for mom, right? For God or some higher power or something. Call it Muhammad, call it God, call it Jesus, whatever you want to call it, right? Buddha. Every culture has that. So what Carl Jung said is there are universal themes or what he called archetypes that exist in everyone. If you say to your dog, bad dog, you don't have to teach the dog what bad means. Dog gets it. And you've seen dogs, you go, bad dog, and they go, and they put their head down and they walk away. So he said, every living and non-living you know, being shares this collective unconscious where I don't have to teach it what good or bad is. What your unique representation, that's personal unconscious, that's unique to you, but the shared collective unconscious, that we're all interconnected. So very kind of psychic kind of theory. Um, there's actually a book called The Red Book. It was written uh, by Carl Jung. You can find it. Um, and it's, it's infamous for, it was his thoughts and writings and drawings at the time. And he actually did some self-exploration and um, tried to do some self-hypnosis and got so close at one point to this abyss that he, he, it scared him. And so he stopped doing it. The book's half completed. It's kind of interesting. So, you know, look into, do some research on the Red Book by Carl Jung. You know, I think you'll be fascinated by it. And then the last one you see up here is Karen Hornet, um, 1885 to 1952. Karen Hornet was uh, what we consider the first feminist psychologist. She thought Freud was sexist. She did not believe in penis envy. She said that's crap. In fact, if we, if, if we told her she's considered a neo-Freudian today, and you know, a new Freudian, she, she'd probably be upset over that. But the reason why she's in this category is because she believed that adult problems were caused by childhood issues. In other words, parental issues of raising them. And that basic anxiety was the cause of that that came out of childhood. So because it comes out of childhood, and it's driven by unconscious anxiety, she's considered neo-Freudian. Got it? But she didn't believe in all the sex crap. So questions about any of those three? And you can see, again, um, in this PowerPoint, I have links to movies that you can then go watch. So that's Freud's perspective. Pretty straightforward. Make sense? Now we're going to switch. We're going to talk about behaviorism. I'm going to have to try to pick it up a little bit. I noticed that my time is ticking much quicker than my slideshow here. right? 
So behaviorism, that's an approach to understanding um, behavior that emphasizes the relationship between observable behavior and the environment. Behaviorism is the approach, the modern approach or perspective that we, um, we should really focus on observable behavior. That's the only scientific thing we should look at. In fact, if you were a strict behaviorist, you'd never talk about the mind or unconscious. You can't measure that, so it's not within our realm of science. It's philosophy. Send Freud back to philosophy. Right? The underlying assumption in this approach, this behavioral approach, is the principles of conditioning, of learning, right, that can explain all behavior. So we have classical conditioning. You guys remember we talked about that in chapter two. Classical conditioning, learning by association. Two things are paired together, and then I do one thing by itself, and it shows this response. So again, stimulus response. Review, if you want to, go back and you can kind of review that a little bit more. And then operant conditioning, to operate on the environment, that's um, the other behavioral approach. So we'll talk a little bit about classical conditioning, then we'll talk, you know, just touch on it because we did talk about it in chapter two, and then we'll get into operant conditioning. So Pavlov, we'll take a step back. Pavlov believed that most, if not all, human behavior could be analyzed and explained in terms of innate or acquired reflexes. He was a biologist, it's all reflexes. Doesn't matter what's in your head. It's all reflexes. Dog salivates at the sound of a bell. Doesn't think about it. It's because the bell and meat powder have been associated and matched together. And the reflex is salivation. Make sense? And after a bunch of pairings, now a new reflex, salivation at the sound of a bell occurs. That's not a reflex. It's something new. It's learned. Right? In human beings, um, John Watson did the little Albert experiment and de demonstrated this could be done with children and adults. And again, I have a link for you to kind of follow along outside of here um, to a video on YouTube about the little Albert experiment. John Watson, John B. Watson actually collected data and actually did videotapes of, or not videotapes, but movies, film of um, the experiments that he did back in the day. Right? A more modern perspective in behaviorism, though, is this one uh, by B.F. Skinner. So this is operant conditioning. It's separate from classical conditioning because now it's learning by consequence. Instead of just pairing two things together, you're going to do something, you're going to get a good or bad outcome, and then you're going to decide to do it again or not. Today, I was driving to class. And I mentioned before I started recording, there was a lot of road construction for like 10 miles. I don't know. There was nobody in the, the right-hand lane. It was a two-lane highway, four-lane highway, but two lanes headed each direction. There was no one in the right-hand lane, or everyone was in the right-hand lane, no one in the left-hand lane. So there were all these cones, and there's nobody in the left-hand lane. And part of me really wanted to say, hell with this, I'm not following this line of traffic, I'm going to pop on the other side of the cones and just hammer. But if I'd done that, and a police officer pulled me over, and probably gave me a huge ticket, probably loss of license, I would probably be less likely to do it again. 
even though I might be tempted to do it. So this is B.F. Skinner, notes, 1904 to 1990, he promoted this kind of operant conditioning that involves voluntary behaviors. And here's what it says, it says, a form of learning in which consequences of responses influence its later probability. You go, why does probability? Well, B.F. Skinner's a scientist. He's digging the statistical analysis stuff, so it's all about probabilities. So let's look at some of the terms in operant conditioning. Reinforcement. Reinforcement is a process in which a consequence is strengthened or um, increases the likelihood that the response will be repeated. So all reinforcement acts to increase behavior. You do something, I either take something away you don't like or I give you something you do like and you're more inclined to do it again, right? Driving to class today, Bailey, and, and you, you're, you're, you get pulled over for speeding, you cry like a baby, and you get out of the ticket, what's the chances you're going to cry like a baby the next time a police officer pulls you over? More likely. More likely, right? You cry like a baby, and I give you the ticket anyway, what's the chances you're going to cry like a baby again? Less likely. You might do it, but you know it's not going to have any effect. So it's not going to be as dramatic. Does that kind of make sense? So that's what happens. We have primary reinforcers. These are things that by nature are just reinforcing. Food, drink, uh, companionship, you know, social support. Those are all things we desire. By, by nature, we're built to take that on. Love, right? Sex, could be any of those. Those are biological. And they almost always provide reinforcement because there's something you desire. Since you get what you desire, more likely to increase the behavior. Secondary or conditioned reinforcers. These are secondary. They become important because they're associated with a primary reinforcer. And, and I won't get into all the detail, but Secondary reinforcers are classically conditioned to be that way. Like, I'll give you guys an example. You guys are, are struggling and working hard for a letter of the alphabet. That's it. You're working for an A. A is nothing. A, it's a letter of the alphabet, just like B, C, D, E, whatever. But A is associated with success. A is associated with personal, you know, fulfillment. And so you strive for the A, because, and then A is associated with more money, better lifestyle, more food, more income, more desirable objects that you want. So A now becomes valuable to you because of what it can, what it's associated with. Does that make sense? So you strive for an A, which means nothing in the whole scheme of things, right? Striving for a case of beer, if you're someone who likes beer, makes sense. Striving for a case of water when you're thirsty, makes sense. Striving for an A, well, I gotta jump that hoop a little bit, right? So I have to make a connection to make that important. The other thing you see up here is punishment. That's the other process that happens. Punishment works to decrease the probability Driving on down the road today, you speeding, a police officer pulls you over, they give you a ticket. 
they punish you for speeding. Hopefully it lessens your speeding behavior. Right? Maybe, maybe not. Or you talk back to your parents, you miss your curfew, they take your car keys away. Hopefully to decrease the probability that you'll do that behavior again. So that's punishment. All right. So we can have positive, right? It says the effects of a consequence can be further organized by the consideration of whether the behavioral contingency involves the presentation or something or removal. So let's go back to we've got reinforcement and punishment, two types that we can affect behavior. I have positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. I have positive punishment and negative punishment. And what I want you to think about is when you hear the word positive, think addition. Positive reinforcement, I give you something to increase behavior. Positive punishment, I give you something to decrease behavior. A ticket for punishment, I give you a raise for good work at work. Make sense? So I give you something to either increase or decrease behavior, whether it's positive punishment or negative punishment. Or positive punishment or positive reinforcement, sorry. The negative makes sense on one end, it gets a little tricky on the other. So negative punishment, I take something away to decrease behavior. You talk back, I take away your car keys, I take away your cell phone to decrease the behavior. I don't let you go to the dance to decrease behavior. I don't let you go to homecoming. I ground you. I take away your freedom to decrease behavior. Negative punishment. That one makes sense. Everyone gets that. Here's the one of the four that's the trickiest. Negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement. I take something away to increase behavior. And people go, wait, wait, you're taking something away to increase behavior. Right, so remember my example with Bailey. She cries like a baby to avoid or escape the ticket. If it allows her to avoid or escape the ticket, chances are she's going to cry like a baby again. That's negative reinforcement. Your child is crying, Mom, don't send me to my room, please, please, please. They're begging you, don't send them to their room, right? Because that's the punishment. And you, you give in, and you don't send them to your room. You've just reinforced their whiny behavior by removing something they didn't want. And I'll give you another example. This one just came to me recently, right? I actually read it somewhere, and I thought, oh, it's a great idea to talk about it that way. Think about the car that you climb into and you, a seat belt, right? You turn the key and you get ding, 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 and it's going to keep doing that. Ding, 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 until you do what? Buckle your seatbelt. Seat as soon as you buckle your seatbelt, it goes away. Chances are you're going to buckle your seatbelt to avoid the buzzing in the future. It's negative reinforcement, right? So hopefully those examples help you. 
And again, you can see this is just a chart that lays it out. If the stimulus is pleasant, right, and the consequences involve presentation of it, then it's positive reinforcement. And I, I'm cautious about the term pleasant. Because what's reinforcing to one person might not be reinforcing to another person. It makes me think of the episode of Family Guy. The cartoon Family Guy. There's an episode where Stewie talks back to Lois and Lois spanks him. And Stewie wants spanked now. So Stewie goes and breaks things and carries on. He wants Lois to spank her, right? She was trying to punish him. Give him something he doesn't want. A spanking to decrease behavior, but he likes the spanking, so he's going to do more things to get the spanking. That happens sometimes. What's punishing to one person might be reinforcing to another. So you have to really be kind of, it can get really tricky very fast. That's what I'm trying to get at. So, what are some of the other terms that we see in this field? Well, discriminative stimulus is a stimulus that serves as a signal that a certain response will lead to a forcer or not. You go and you say something to your parent and they give you that look. And you're like, and they say, excuse me, what did you say? And you go, nothing. It was a stimulus that indicated whether punishment or reinforcement was coming. And so it kind of just that alone without the punishment or reinforcement affected you. A discriminative, a discriminative stimulus, right? And what we learn through these kind of stimuli, you know, these triggers, if you will, what we learn is that we don't just make a response, but we start to learn only do this under certain circumstances. Like, being loud in church is not okay. Being loud outside in the playground is okay. So we learn through these, you know, reinforcement punishment, we learn what's appropriate in what setting. You know, stop the car in the presence of a red light, continue forward in the presence of a green one. And so these, these help to guide our actions. The basic assumption of operant conditioning when it comes to abnormal behavior is that abnormal behavior is shaped because it produces some kind of reinforcing consequences. So let me give you an example. Let's say that when you're younger, your parents say, I want you to go do something and you're like, you really don't want to do it. So you go, I have a stomach ache. You really don't have a stomach ache. But you say you have a stomach ache. So you get out of doing whatever it is, right? It benefits you. You're escaping negative reinforcement. So I go, oh, okay, well, you're sick. All right, well, then, you know, I'll, I'll go take care of it. Now, every single time someone says, I want you to do something, you go, I've got a stomach ache. I really, I don't so now you've learned that's your escape mechanism. So maybe for some people who learn depression, that's their escape mechanism to escape from responsibilities of life. So maybe you learn the abnormal behavior. It's reinforced in some way. There's a benefit you get from it. If I can take the benefit away, then you're less likely to do it. 
that kind of makes sense. Grew up in an alcoholic family, the only way to party. I, I remember when I got married, right? My parents are, well, not my parents, but my family, you know, is a big party family. I got married in the church. We held our reception in the basement of the church. No alcohol was allowed. I had some relatives that did not show up to the, to the wedding. Because they're like, well, I can't drink afterwards. I'm like, yeah, well, we're staying in the Holiday Inn Hotel, you know, up the street. Oh, well, we'll show up there later. Party with you. And they weren't going to the wedding. Again, because they learned the only way to party is, or the only way to celebrate is through alcohol. Well, that's not how I do it, but that's how they saw things. So again, maybe your abnormal behavior is reinforced, or maybe you're punished for being good, and now you're being bad. Right? So abnormal behavior should be subject to unlearning. If that's the case, if you learn to be abnormal, then we can unlearn it. It's a pretty positive view of behavior. If you learn to be the way you are, we can unlearn it. It's not permanent. It's not forever laid out. So that's really what, what again, we take a look at. Right? But what we have to do is we have to kind of reverse it. Right? We've got to take a look at it. And so they have this, this idea, your book talks about, of reversal design. An experimental design in which reinforcement contingencies are changed, reinstated, and changed again to demonstrate how the behavior is really tied in to the outcome, you know, whether you get rewarded or not. So we, we can play with that, and we can actually take a look at it. Right? So if that's the case, that you can unlearn it, then how can we get you to learn something new? Well, we can do what's called contingency management, the use of token economies, right? Where you, I reward you. I reward you for doing good things. Um, I worked in a treatment center with adolescents, and we were trying to break their uh, negative behaviors. And so we set up what's called a, a token economy. If you went to therapy and you shared you know, with your therapist this week, you got an extra half hour of, of stay up time before bedtime. Right? And if you were progressing well in therapy, you got rewarded. You could go off grounds to a treatment meeting instead of having to stay on grounds or you could have an extra phone call with family or whatever it might be. And if you didn't do what you were supposed to, then we removed, you know, things that you could do. Well, you get no TV time tonight because you, you acted out. So again, we try to shape behavior that way. We can do modeling. I can model good behavior and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll follow along. Systematic desensitization, it's counter conditioning, counter learning. Maybe you're afraid of airplanes, you're afraid to fly, so I systematically introduce you to the idea of flying. We talk about flying, I get you to calm down and relax so that we can talk about flying without you getting anxious. I show you pictures of airplanes, it makes you anxious, I get you to be calm so we can look through the pictures without you getting you know, anxious. We go to the airport, we don't get on a plane yet, we just watch them fly and you get anxious just being there like, oh my goodness, but we get you to calm down and then eventually we get you to walk on the plane and eventually we get you to fly. Systematically desensitizing you to the feared object. 
And then we can do what's called covert sensitization, which is where I'm, you, know, you get a person to do it in their head. Covert means you don't have to physically experience it. I can get you to imagine. Imagine the angst that you would have if you had to fly right now. Let's work through that. Questions about this? All right. So today, what do we use? Well, believe it or not, these behavioral techniques have been kind of mixed in with other approaches. And so we have like cognitive behavioral therapies that says, okay, you have a brain, so you have to work on your thinking, but we have to work on behavior too. So think about this. Have you ever been at home and like your friends are going out and they, they knock on your door and they say, hey, why don't you go out to the club, you know, go to the gym with us today. And you go, I don't really feel like going to the gym today. And they go, come on, go to the gym. So in your head, you don't want to go, right? Have you ever gone to the gym and after working out, you feel good? You're like, you know what? Thanks for making me go. I'm so glad I went now. So cognitive behavioral therapy says change thinking and it changes behavior or change behavior and it changes thinking. That they're interconnected. Kind of, but not in a negative format. Okay, so you're depressed. And you go, I have no friends. Nobody ever talks to me. Well, yeah, you're doom and gloom boy. Right? You're like Eeyore. Nobody wants to hang with you because like, there's this black cloud hanging over your head. So fake it till you make it. Pretend to be happy. Go and say hi to one new person every day. And what you do by doing that is you get them to be more social. Because they're more social, they have more social interactions, they feel more connected to everybody else, their behavior then starts to change their thinking. So do one or the other, but the other one's going to follow. It has no choice. Cognitive behavioral approaches. ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's another way. Patients are taught to recognize the presence of certain bothersome emotions and then to accept it. Like, okay, yeah, you're depressed, guess what? It happens. So now you know what it is. It's depression. We're going to label it. We're going to call it what it is. And you realize that you're going to go in and out of depression probably for the rest of your life at times. But it's time limited. And we can get through this. So you empower them. You go, okay, we're not going to avoid it. We'll, we'll experience it, but we're going to realize that it's time limited. So again, it's a more positive, becoming more mindful, becoming more committed to doing good behaviors. So forcing yourself, kind of like you said, force yourself to go do it even when you might not feel like it. Because we know at the other end, you're going to feel better at the end. So again, just variations on this. The next one is biological approaches. Biological approaches are the other kind of contemporary perspective. And they say that abnormal behavior, just to summarize this down, instead of flipping through all the sides, abnormal behavior is caused by biological reasons. A lesion in your brain, uh, bad wiring, genetics, uh, neurotransmitters are off. Um, the electrical impulses within your brain don't work right. So what we can do is we can do shock therapy. Again, if you believe the cause is biological, then the therapy has to follow. Right? 
So, and this has really come about because of our research in anatomy and uh, neurochemistry. It provides a lot more insight um, into, again, the physical basis for behavior. So maybe chromosomes. You know, maybe we do, maybe it's in our chromosomes, it's in our genes, it's in heredity. Maybe that's what's happening it's somewhere in our phenotype or genotype. Um, alcoholism. Does it run in families? Yep. So, and let's say that, you know, you grew up in an alcoholic family. You know, you chose not to drink. So you never drank. You never became an alcoholic yourself. You have kids. Do they have the potential to abuse substances? Because it's in your genotype. It's in your genetic makeup that you may be more susceptible to that. And so while they never grew up in a drinking household, they could develop a drinking problem because they didn't see the negative stuff that you saw. Do you see how that happens? So again, schizophrenia, does there seem to be a heredity component? Anxiety disorders. My wife has an anxiety disorder. Her mother has an anxiety disorder. Our daughter has an anxiety disorder. Surprise, surprise. Right? Runs in families. Could be learned, could be biology. We can do twin studies, adoption studies. We can study the effects of heredity. We can estimate the, uh, the impact of genetic influences. And this even follows along with the brain and the nervous system and neurotransmission. So again, this belief, this biological belief is that maybe your neurotransmitters are off. Maybe there's a chemical imbalance. Maybe there's something wrong with the brain. So that's where all this comes from. And there's a bunch of slides in here, just for time's sake. Um, again, you can take a look at them. I think some of this stuff, does this stuff make sense to you? I mean, I feel like I'm kind of cheating you because I'm not doing every single slide, but I, I don't know that I need to. I think it makes sense. I, I think maybe in the day, maybe it didn't, but I've had most of you guys, not all of you guys before, so I think you know that. And again, there's some links that you can take a look at for, for videos. Here's just a chart. This is a family pedigree of Alzheimer's disease. And it just shows you, again, the linkages, right? So in this case, the blackened symbols are positive cases. So if it's a, a circle, right, if it's black, it's a positive case for Alzheimer's disease. With the strike through, they were diseased at the time of tracking. So these are going back historical data to look at this family right? Who suffers and who doesn't? And you can kind of see some genetic kind of, you know, follow along. The, the circles are females, the squares are males, right? And you can kind of see how sometimes it's weaned itself out, but not always. Sometimes it's re, you know, re shown itself again later on. Here, you know, here's a female that came from this lineage had no Alzheimer's disease. Their spouse had no Alzheimer's disease. Their offspring has none. Here is a spouse who, um, a male who had a mom who had Alzheimer's disease. Then they had a son and a daughter. They both had Alzheimer's disease, but then had another son who didn't. So you can see that there does seem to be some patterns. Again, maybe not always logical patterns, but patterns show up definitely heredity comes into play. And again, we can take a look at twin studies. Are they identical twins, monozygotic, dizygotic? If they're identical twins, they're genetically identical. We see higher levels 
of like, for example, schizophrenia. If one twin has schizophrenia, there's a higher likelihood the second identical twin will have it. I have a quick question. Yeah. Sure. So heredity, does it, you see how like at the bottom it kind of like disappears? Right. Do you know what I mean? So do you think after a while like that stuff can go away? I think it has the potential to kind of be, if we were going to approach it from a Darwin perspective, survival of the species, there has to be a way to weed out negative behaviors. So over time those behaviors that don't benefit a species seem to disappear. Right? So our belief is, yeah, we would expect to hopefully continue to see a weeding out of this genetic abnormality, if that's what it is, or this genetic trait. But keep in mind, it could still be in that person's makeup. There's still some history. There's still a little bit of potential. But as we get further and further away from the source, it should become less and less. We hope. If biology is causing it. But again, there could be a lot of factors that cause Alzheimer's disease. And biology is just one ex explanation. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Again, you can kind of, ooh, ooh, whoa. My screen just went big on me. All right. So we can look at adoption studies because, again, adopted children. Um, are nothing like their parents. If there's mental illness in that family, maybe it's more learned than it is genetics, or maybe it comes from their original parents. So again, we can take a look at all these different aspects to look at the biological influences to kind of determine what is environment and what's genetics. Um, I'm just trying to see where I want to go with this. We're kind of out of time. So I'll tell you what. We didn't make it all the way through. We're a little bit behind, about half a chapter behind where I want to be. We still have some overflow days, and that's okay. So I'm going to stop this. It looks like this might actually be a three-parter. Oh, how, how does that happen? So a three-part lecture on the contemporary perspectives. Um, I apologize for that if you're listening at home, but I'm sure it'll make sense when you get it all pieced together. So any questions in here before I stop this recording and we end for the day? No questions? All right. Thanks for listening.